0: So Nathan, we kind of touched on it in the earlier segments here today, but we wanted to talk about the idea of ongoing assessment for individuals who are working on the front lines, specifically front lines of healthcare, but the the idea of how much trauma are we accruing in our trauma bank because Mm. of our job and is anyone asking the question of how how are you really doing more than a manager walking by on your unit and asking it or someone checking in with you, but a professional who knows what to look for. What if someone was checking in four times a year with what your experiences have been, how you're managing with them, how you're coping with with the stress? What is your mental health
1: actually like?
0: Not not at a time of crisis, but as a maintenance check-in.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's something I've thought about for quite a while is uh, anybody who's uh, first responder, anybody who's in acute care, ER, and I think probably everybody else as well, maybe to a less, lesser extent as far as frequency of assessment is concerned. But I'll, first of all, Corey, I'll, I'll ask what I know nurses are supposed to do some kind of a debriefing. What does, to your knowledge, what does that look like in a the average uh, health authority in BC? You know, is that something that takes place once a month? Is it once a year? Is it as needed? And how does it work?
0: To my knowledge, the debriefing process happens immediately or as close to the event occurring. Oftentimes, at least in in healthcare, it's physician led or leadership led, where the incident is kind of broken down blow by blow of what happened and who did what, what worked well, what didn't work, work well. If there were any unresolved thoughts about anything that occurred during that, uh, that incident um, things that people want to want to ask or want to talk about. So it's very much sort of like a round table discussion, but it's, it's led by usually led by the team of physicians. And that is again. So if, if there was a, a, a trauma that came in, that would occur, you know, within an hour or two after that incident. Sometimes it's it's right away in the in the trauma room, but sometimes it's because if other things are going on, it takes a little bit of time. I've also been involved in incidents that that where it was come in the next day and we'll bring in a a professional like a psychologist to to lead the debrief. And those okay. are usually for a little bit bigger, bigger incidents that have happened, but yeah.
1: Okay so there is some acknowledgement uh, and there is some action taken as far as uh, they realize that some of these events are going to impact people there is going to be trauma what's the what what are your thoughts on that process as far as its effectiveness is it working is it helping is there things that we could build on from there what do you think
0: I think I think it is
1: a good thing
0: certainly it's good if you have any 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 little hiccups during the incident that where people can air that out and ask the question about why did we do this? Or why didn't we do this? Say, does it take that away? Does it take the memory of the trauma away? Does it take the full impact in the, in the brain away? I don't think so. I think that um, at times it can give a little bit of clarity and maybe a little bit of closure even, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it, it, it takes longer. I think, I think that, those the impact can be lingering and the impact needs to be that question needs to be asked maybe again down the road about how are you doing after this incident it's not it's it ties it up there's some closure there but it's not necessarily internal closure for the person on the receiving end of it i, I don't think
1: right yeah so that's closure was what i was thinking when you were you were discussing that that yeah maybe it did uh kind of tie up some loose ends but is it set up to identify particular individuals who may have been affected in a significant way?
0: That's another good question. You know, I, I in the the debriefs that I've been a part of in the past, uh, it would be the whole team involved. I think there's sometimes benefit to to further conversations one-on-one or conversations just with the individuals who who were more directly impacted or had a a more direct role. Mm -hmm. I've been in debriefs that have been too big, too large of a group where you feel like you're, you're lost in that a little bit, or where you need a little bit more time Mm -hmm. to talk it out and bang it out. And we're with too large of a group. And especially with a group of your peers, um, depending on the group of peers, it, it may not feel safe.
1: This is the problem that I, that I see with that. Like what you're discussing there because it's not one-on-one with a a, a trauma professional, you're like you said, you're, you're basically, you're going to have many individuals who may be profoundly affected, but don't have the understanding of, you know, their own kind of reaction to trauma or they don't understand trauma at all. And therefore think, well, everyone here seems fine. This shouldn't bother me either. They move on this, you know, it accumulates becomes worse Whereas if you had somebody, what I think would be good for acute care professionals would be like a a quarterly review for everybody. And it it would be a one-on-one thing. It would be somebody's job, a trauma professional of some sort. And they would basically, it would be a a wellness check. Mm -hmm. You know, you see, it'd be a great opportunity to, you know, you'd have to You'd want somebody who had the the ability to build trust. You would have to be a, a confidential, uh, you'd have to get around the the nonsense of, you know, if this if they think the person's you, you can't have somebody in there who's going to be rubber stamping every third person for no. uh, <laughs> as unfit to run their own affairs. You want somebody in there who who cares about people and knows when when an individual is is not being protected or not and is not aware of what's even happening to them. Yeah. So I think if we could implement something like that, we would probably save, you'd have a lot less uh, nurses quitting. Mm-hmm. You'd have uh, less nurses using whatever substances to cope. You know, I I, I would love to see a, a pilot uh, study on something like that and maybe if I uh, spent some time looking, uh, maybe they do that in other countries like Europe. It sounds like something they'd be all over, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on that?
0: When I think about myself, how interesting it would have been if I was asked about my coping mechanisms and my general mental health for one, obviously, mm-hmm. but also to, you know, over the course of a, of a, an, a quarter of a year, you know, if someone said, Corey, what were the top three or four impactful trauma incidents that you encountered? And depending on how I relayed them, I think it just would have been really interesting. Like to me, as I reflect back, the the instances that were the most traumatic to me became etched in my memory, and I could remember every vivid detail of them, and I could mm-hmm. recount them like you know. Second by second, and I remembered them way too vividly. And um, you know, it wasn't until I went off work and was asked by uh, by the union, and then ultimately by you know workers' compensation, about what were the traumas that I encountered, and I I remember I, I rattled off ten of them, just as an example. And I and I could have that was I was being conservative, and they. Had the the amount that they inc- impacted me varied, um, but for the ones that were the most impactful, I remember them so so well, and they were just right at the forefront of my memory, uh, even months later, even years later. And so to to I think to check in with people and to to see like what have people actually been through, because that was not a question that was asked of me. Those were stories that became you know a, a healthcare notch in the belt, unfortunately, that, you know, a war story that you would share maybe at the, at the nursing desk on a night shift, like I saw this and and this Mm -hmm. happened, but they weren't necessarily like, how did that actually feel for you?
1: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that you, you describe those memories like that. I can't remember if you, I don't, I don't know if you're aware, but apparently there's, when you're, you have a traumatic event that impacts you, in a significant way, your mind actually in, there's a change in the hippocampus that can be, those traumas are stored in parts of the memory that are different than normal memories. And they're much more robust. And that, you know, what you're saying is it seems to me that if, if, if I was trying to assess people with trauma and they, they were able to, you know, rattle off 10 stories that were in great detail and were, you know, about months ago or years ago, I would be very concerned immediately. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be very hard to to actually implement something like this, as far as just kind of like throwing up some flags, right. Mm -hmm. And asking those questions, like you said, nobody ever asked, well, what do you think? You're like, man, that sounds pretty intense. Do you think that, is affecting you somehow, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and also things that happen on night shifts can be overlooked. Things that happen on weekends when there isn't the management and support staff there, there's an impact there, or, or at least like it, those things can kind of fall by the wayside and, and go unnoticed say, Mm -hmm. um, and, and just because of the nature of the job, we don't necessarily stop and, and take an inventory of, of what we've been through and I, I think if I had a, could do something differently, I would have taken that inventory a long time ago and and obviously unpacked some of those things before it reached a crisis point for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting because you with nurses, um, it seems like well, police, anybody who's uh, who's frontline, it seems like the more potential there is for trauma on your job, the more the more weight is put on that individual to tough it out and not evaluate it. It, We're doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing for those individuals. Yeah. You know, I, it's a bizarre thing. And then to, you know, kind of scratch your head and wonder when you get nurses that are using drugs to cope or, you know, get through a shift or when you have uh RCMP who are going home and drinking themselves to sleep every night, it's not like we don't have the information. The, the Like the, the, we have some pretty good information on how trauma works. Yeah. And I think it's, it's time. We, uh, we really made adjustments to counter that kind of uh, tough it out narrative. And I, I realize that this is not a new concept, but it isn't a concept that seems to be getting implemented very quickly.
0: No, no, so, it's not. And, and we, you know, we talked a couple of months ago in our podcast that they they were talking about peer support meetings mm-hmm. for professionals to log in online and kind of check in. But my understanding is that those are a little bit more general. So I think with trauma specifically, it has to be a, a bit more direct in the action that's taken.
1: Yeah, and I I think it's got to be in a setting that doesn't involve your peers for this one. You you can't be going to a it can't be a group thing where you all show up as like as you stated there in your debrief because uh inevitably what you know it could be the person who's only been on the job for 6 months and they're rattled man. Like if for yep. whatever reason Maybe they'd experience a similar trauma or whatever happened. They're rattled, but they're just trying to keep it together. They don't want to say anything because they're worried that they're going to get you know, a negative uh, report or it's going to affect their employment somehow. We need to be able to get those individuals into a, a place where they can at least unload some of that stuff to somebody who's going to respect their privacy and give them some feedback that they can then go on to use. Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and there's an, obviously there's an implication for, for sick time. There's an implication for the staffing of these, of these units or these hospitals or these policing um, police departments. But again, the impact is far greater when it's ignored. Exactly. Far, far greater when it's ignored.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody who says they don't have the money for that, I would challenge and say, Look at how many uh, healthcare professionals you're losing now. Look at the ones who are performing a quarter of what they could be doing because they're, you know, they they can't sleep because of whatever their psychological problems are that aren't being addressed, or they have substance abuse issues that are, you know, they're maybe they're drinking too much after the shift. They're showing up hungover. There's just there's so many of these things that we know are going on, and and. I don't know what the actual number is, but I would imagine that if we took some precautions here, we would, in the long term, end up saving a lot of careers, probably save some lives along the way, and uh, eventually you would save money.
0: Absolutely. And, and I was always, I always went away from the, the debriefs with a, a bit of a feeling like, um, from my employer's standpoint, I wondered if the employer thought, Like, okay, that's done. We've we're we're absolved of any responsibility, or we've we've done our part. I see. Uh, um, And it's 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 bigger than that. I think it requires checking in and follow up. That debrief can impact how trauma sits within our within our brain within our whole bodies. But it's not a it's not a complete prevention prevention of of PTSD and of of, of its impact.
1: Yeah. Well, clearly not. I mean, if you, I mean, you were existing in a workplace that had that framework set up and yet you had, well, we've, we've got, we know people who have yeah. been terribly traumatized and, you know, whether or not they go back to work, it, it's going to be a long road for them trying to, to get past how much trauma has accumulated in a, really quite a short amount of time too. I mean it, it doesn't take much if you' if it's a direct hit and it's already somewhere that you're weakened from another experience. Yes yeah, yeah. you know and
0: I, I really learned in counseling and counseling during uh, early recovery that those memories that I kept coming back to in my mind, I was coming back to them a lot and I wasn't even noticing how often I would come back to those memories. And not like flashes, not like the classic kind of what we think of as PTSD, where or you know where it's like this big, you know, flash that wakes us up at night or that that alarms us, but just over the course of a day, particularly when I was at work, um, where those those memories would come into my mind, being triggered by something else, where I would you know, see, for example, see blood, and a, a, another memory would come into my mind. Mm-hmm. Or see a certain type of patient, maybe see a child, and then I would think of a of another incident with a, another child. And I don't think at the time I fully recognized that as a warning sign. That that those were things that were that were lingering, and that those were the things that I specifically needed to pick apart with a professional and and talk about. Um, and for me, I ended up doing art about it and kind of figuring out ways to release it. It was just like I remember just. <laughs> brushing it off when I would be at work and, and have a flash of, of a incident that had happened and then be like, hmm, and then kind of keep going and not, not realizing that, you know, what I learned through smart recovery, say that that thought was leading to a feeling in my body, a feeling of a, like a stress response or an anxiety response that I was then trying to cope with. Yeah. And that's the, that's the link there, right? Like that's the whole bloody thing.
1: Yes. <laughs> And as you were describing it there, I was wondering how many people would be capable of, of recognizing that if you just went around and, and, you know, picked a few people out of a hospital or out of community settings and, uh, asked them if they had those kind of thoughts, could they remember certain incidents that seem to recur those kind of things? You know, what is the baseline level of awareness of trauma in the first place? Yep. I would suspect that it's quite low. I mean, people are. It's it's a lot more. It's a term that's used much more frequently these days. But yep. to under to understand the psychological uh, impact of it and how you said, uh, like how, how your thoughts play into your actions and emotions, I think if you know if people were even operating on an awareness at that level that that you're at now, where you you can see that maybe they'd be able to sort of regulate themselves out of those situations better. I don't know.
0: I mean, that's a, that's probably a whole other, a whole other chapter for us to talk about it, about, you know, a doing the assessment to find out the impact of trauma in the workplace on frontline workers, but then some actual coping skills and some actual like self-assessment, self-assessment. Yeah.
1: When you, when you experience those, uh, event, uh, memories at work, you, you mentioned that it made you feel anxious, um, and that there was maybe a, I think you're talking about like a cortisol type response where you're, you get a little mm-hmm. sympathetic, uh, nervous system action. Is it, is it always the, the same kind of feeling? Is it, is it a feeling that's unique to that process or is there different emotions associated with different events?
0: Yeah, that's a great question I think I think different emotions with different events there were events that were that were scarier there were events that were sadder and more painful mm. and and events that were more chaotic and more you know mm-hmm. anxiety producing and like uh, adrenaline adrenaline producing um mm-hmm. So they kind of blurred together and, and not, and one of those responses wasn't necessarily, um, you know, freestanding without the others. They oftentimes, there were multiple responses in one, but, but some had more than others for sure.
1: Yeah. I just, I I think back to, you know, situations where that have caused me, you know, whatever the event was, it, it, caused a tremendous emotional response and the memory of whatever events were taking place at that time i, I mean i don't know if it's it, it's etched into my head in the way that a traumatic event would be but i do have memories that when i think of, think about the memory and it, and it replays in my head i have a much larger than normal emotional response to the memory yeah and uh i wonder if that's a a clue as to how significant that event, you know, the, uh, I don't want to call it, it damage or I don't know what you call it. Trauma, I guess.
0: Yeah. And you know, the other thing that you, that you just said that made me realize that you were talking about what was the emotional response to these, these uh, situations I was encountering, I would have an internal, an internal response, but I was not outwardly emoting either. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe there's a big part of the problem that, that when I think back on the, on the stuff that I was seeing and encountering any human being that was not desensitized would have been in tears or would have been, been distraught at some mm-hmm. of the, some of the stuff. Like it, it, it is not normal to, to be a part of the death of an infant mm-hmm. and not have an emotional response For God's sakes, like, like I should have had an emotional response to that, but instead it was like all internalized. And I remember in that incident thinking, well, I I can't cry right now. I can't break down. I got to hold my shit together. Mm -hmm. And like that being pushed all the way down and to the point where then if I was going to try to, to do that later on or debrief it later on or feel it later on, I think it would have been difficult. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the desensitizing had already happened before some of those big events occurred. So then when the event occurred, it was traumatic and I wouldn't outwardly feel it. Right. Or at least in a way that would be uh, sort of normal within our society, say.
1: Yeah. So you're, you're effectively training yourself via desensitization to not feel. And then when it gets to a point that, you're starting to notice actual physical symptoms or psychosomatic symptoms from this you know the the amount of trauma and toxic uh, events that are building up you not only don't have the tools to to do something about it but even when you finally go to find somebody to help you with that they have to dig through five layers of oh, armor yeah. because you've you've uh, been training yourself for years to to do that yeah it's a i don't know how our society like i i i understand the logistics of what needs to be done in an emergency and everything but i wonder sometimes if we're just asking too much of people
0: i don't know i don't know because you know the do you want a, a doctor or a nurse or a police officer who's distraught and crying
1: you can't have that no, but we don't want people who are, you know, we can't have th- those individuals go on to uh, die of a heart attack or a stroke or drink themselves to death either. No, so there needs to be our our culture really fails here. But I know like other cultures, they have ways of um, they have ceremonies and and different methods and techniques and traditions where it allows them to maintain a certain state of mind in say battle or uh during the loss of a loved one to respect their passing and then afterwards there's a process that they go through to bring to bring all that stuff up and grieve the shit out of it or or feel it with the the full force of your being and somewhere along the line we have lost that
0: you know, yeah, this is a, a, a great great point there too, and you know, I'm aware that in, in palliative care settings, uh, where they, where there are multiple deaths on a palliative care unit a day, that there are those rituals. Oh, really? That are that are very much ingrained in the culture of the of the department, where the entire staff say would see see a patient's body with their family see the patient's body through to the elevator to take them down uh, where, uh, you know, the same quilt um, that's sort of special and meaningful to the department is placed over that body huh. where there's a, a light in the department that is switched on for the day after an individual dies, say. I see. Think, things think like that. So you, you think about that and it, that's kind of fascinating that, it, that, a. uh, and that's a, a, a slower paced, less sort of high intensity, high adrenaline environment. It's a it's a much more gentle, um, empathetic.
1: It's a Western society version of yeah, but at least it's something.
0: Yeah, and 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 I would gather that the individuals who work there and get get used to that um, experience and getting a sense of closure and having it be a, a meaningful, even you might say spiritual experience that they have a different sense of closure than what in the, in the acute or in the critical care setting is very sterile. And, um, and there isn't a lot of work to attach meaning or um, value to what has just happened.
1: There's yeah. something to
0: be said for that. I think.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I think about a hospital, it's a you know, sterile it's a, uh, you know, sterile, cold, reductionist. Everything's reductionist, right? Yeah. It's uh, pieced out, parsed out. Everybody's got a job, sish, and everything. It's very mechanical. And uh, it makes me think of uh, books like um, Island by uh, Huxley, where he, he basically describes what his idea of a utopia would be. And the amount of meaning and ritual that was, you know, just a part of their everyday life and how that impacted people's development. And they just, they were never at any point fully detached from one another, never at any point detached from themselves. They're always kind of tuned in. And I, you know, I know it's just a, it's just a story and it's maybe a counterpoint to Brave New World or whatever, but I wonder about that sometimes uh, especially in our culture where we just we've kind of lost a, a lot of uh, a lot of meaning in in a lot of big events.
0: Mhm. And I I really wonder about that in hindsight if some of those traditions or techniques that are used in a palliative care setting were used in an in the emergency department if I would have felt differently at the end of the day. If I would have felt more resolved or at least more derived more sort of meaning from the loss with the family and felt sort of connected to it differently.
1: Yeah, it's hard because you're so pressed for time too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you had the time to contemplate what just happened for a second or two, you know, there's, there's so many areas here that, that could be improved. Yeah. But, uh, yeah it's a it's a fascinating topic anyways.
0: Yeah there's a reason why we have come back to it a number of times and and we will again I'm sure.
1: Mm.